Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. We're sort of, the plane is, is starting to land a little bit in Daniel. And um, so, the, 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 you know, you can think the plane's circling, coming in to try to make the approach. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a kind of an overarch of the last three chapters, Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12 really form one single vision that Daniel has. Uh, and it brings the book to this climax, you might say, a fitting climax. And uh, in, in this last vision, as a pref- word of preface, the veil is drawn back to a certain degree and we're given this insight into a spiritual battle that is going on uh, that's reflected in earthly conflicts. And so that's the preface to Daniel 10. What we're going to do now is I'm going to read the chapter. Uh, if you uh, would like to open in your Bible, uh, you can do that. There are red Bibles or should be a red Bible somewhere in front of you. And uh, it's on page 748 in that Bible. And there's page numbers and other Bibles that we have available in the back. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take that red Bible as a gift to you. Uh, take it home, read it, think about it. That'd be great. So we're going to be in Daniel 10. In God's word this morning, we're going to start in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia... A word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. And I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me. 
and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh, man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, against these, except Michael, your prince. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we come to your word weak and needy. weak in mind, knowing that it's only by your spirit that we could even begin to understand these things, and needy in our hearts, knowing that we have sin and struggles, Lord, these obstacles that keep us from you. Lord, by your grace, would you make known to us your truth today? May the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, we ask, for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Seventh grade was a really bad year for me, really rough year. I was going to a new school. I was the oldest, so I was the first one to go to the new school. I was really insecure, and I felt all alone. The day before the first day of school, I remember going into mom's room and crying on her bed all afternoon saying, I don't want to go. Don't make me go. Don't make me go. And she said, look, I got you this really cool jean backpack. Yep, that's what we had in the 90s, jean backpacks. And I said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. It was a bad year. In gym class that year, I was picked on by another boy. One day after he dropped a baseball on my head, true story, I tackled him and was sent to the office. 
One night in the wintertime, I summoned up the courage to, to call up a girl, a friend that I had known for several years. We went to elementary school together to ask her to the Christmas banquet dance. She surprisingly said yes on the phone. And then the next morning at school, she said, my parents said I can go with you. I probably wouldn't have let her go if she was my daughter either. <laughs> I tried out for the basketball team with my friends and they made the team, but I got cut. I even sang a solo in the spring musical that year and my own dad didn't show up. It was a bad year, it was rough. I felt alone, I felt like I faced one conflict after another and I was all alone. Do you remember a time in your life when you felt entirely alone? I mean like in a cave, dark, and you can't even see any light alone. Maybe you're here today and you're married, but you feel alone. Maybe you're here today and you're in a big family, but you feel different and not like the other family members. You feel alone. Maybe you're surrounded by people you know and people who love you, but you don't believe they love you or care for you. Maybe you're in a job or you're in a relationship where you need to speak up, but you feel powerless to do so. You feel alone. Maybe you or someone you love has a dreaded disease like cancer and you feel powerless, helpless to do anything and you feel alone in the fight. You see, when we come to Daniel 10 today, we find a Daniel who is feeling powerless, helpless, and all alone. He's still under oppression in Babylon. He still sees conflict going on all around him, and he's old and tired. He's been there for over 70 years. He's got to be at least 80 You see, if Daniel were relying on what he saw going on around him, on the material, temporal world, then it makes sense that he might feel alone, doesn't it? It makes sense that he might be tempted to think, uh, there's, no one, there's no one out there. And you see, if we too are relying upon what we see, what we experience, and what we can tangibly see, taste, touch, and, and smell, then it might make sense that we too are tempted to think like this. You see, like Daniel and his countrymen, when we face similar challenges, it makes sense when we're tempted to believe that we're alone in the fight, that we're not loved and cared for by God. It makes sense that we might feel defeated and weak and lonely. So I want to ask this question this morning, how do we face conflict when we feel all alone? How do we face it? See, at the opening of this chapter, we find Daniel, he's in this state of mourning. Verse 2 says, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks, 21 days. And we find this description of how he was mourning. He was fasting from choice foods, from meat and from wine. He was depriving himself of, uh, of lotions and oils to anoint his skin that probably was really dry because they were in a desert. He was mourning. And as one commentator puts it, he was in a state of prayerful turmoil. This, this wasn't just a guy who was sad. 
This was a guy who was downcast and lamenting and prayerfully seeking God. But why? Why, why is he mourning? I mean, didn't we just read Daniel 9 where, where he was reminded of, hey, 70 years and then you're done. And it's been 70 years. Where's the hope that we saw at the end of chapter 9? Where's the promise? You see, I think there's at least two reasons, at least two reasons Daniel's mourning in chapter 10. The first reason I think we, we see when we think about the year. Verse 1 says this, it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, which means it's now 536 BC, okay? So right away, we probably want to ask what's going on in 536 BC, What's going on? Well, we find the answer in the first uh, four chapters of the book of Ezra. Okay, if you were to flip back a few books, several books, many books back, you'll go to Ezra. Okay? And I'm going to summarize a little bit here so we don't read the first four chapters of Ezra because, you know, we just, we don't need to do that right now. So you can do that when you go home. It'd be good. Here's kind of what's going on. Two years ago, By the proclamation of King Cyrus, same king, in the first year of King Cyrus, we're told in Ezra 1.1, he makes a proclamation or a decree that he's going to send or allow a group of Jewish exiles to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God, which is the temple. But once they arrive, what we find is that they're discouraged and they're threatened by the locals. Okay, the people who had taken up residence in the ruins of Judah are not happy that they're there rebuilding their temple. And so what do they do? The locals bribe the officials to frustrate, that's the word that Ezra uses, to frustrate their plans. And eventually they actually convince the king to make a decree to stop their work. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Something happened sort of like that. Make, let's make the king, uh, have the king make a decree about something. Happened earlier in Daniel. So it's helpful for a moment to remember the role of the temple. We, we're sort of removed from this, aren't we? Oh, so they were going to rebuild a church. That's probably what we hear. Why do they need churches? I mean, that's not a big deal. I mean, they could, can't they just worship somewhere else? Well, actually, in, in the life of the people of God, the temple was the central place of worship. This is how they were supposed to worship God properly. It was considered the house of God, and it was the epicenter of proper worship. What it meant was that if there's no temple, there's no place to offer sacrifices, which meant that there's no place to atone for sin. Without the temple, they were feeling like we don't know how we can be reminded that we are forgiven. No temple meant no right worship, no sacrifices, and no formal opportunity to be made right with God. So you can imagine how Daniel, who for two years had this great hope, people are being sent back. They're rebuilding the temple. Isn't this wonderful? God is faithful to his promise 70 years and people are going back. And Daniel, who's left behind in Babylon for some reason unknown to us, probably due to his old age, hears this report. How would you feel? Well, he went into mourning. He's faced again with the reality of suffering, the reality of conflict, and these questions, I'm sure, pop into his mind. Has God left us once again? 
Is God still faithful to his promise? Is there something I'm missing? Am I all alone here, God? I think that's reason number one. Reason number two is related to this. We see in verse four uh, a time indicator. It's the 24th day of the first month. Now, right away, any Jewish listener, their ear perks up when they hear first month. Because something happened. There's a crucial moment in the history of the people of God and a recurring event that was to take place every year in the people of God in the first month. And I'll read in Leviticus 23 about the significance of this month. Leviticus 23 verse 5 says, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month, so the next day, is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Now, why did they celebrate Passover on the first month? Well, the answer's in Exodus. You remember that story about the people of God and slavery, and then God sent plagues, and then God delivered them, and remember they crossed the Red Sea, remember the waters parted. Maybe some of you remember these, these stories, maybe you heard them when you were a child. And now they're in the desert. And God says to them, they've crossed over. They're, they're standing in the desert. And God says, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. See, Passover was a recurring event every year where they remembered God rescues his people. And where's Daniel on the first month? Well, he's the same place he's been for 70 years. He's in oppression. He's in slavery. He's unable to properly observe the Passover. The temple's in ruins. We can't even pilgrimage to Jerusalem and and celebrate with all of our friends and have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We can't do any of this. So I imagine this is why Daniel's in mourning, why he's in prayerful turmoil. You see, we might say that the cause of Daniel's three-week prayerful turmoil was the apparent ongoing conflict and opposition against his God and his God's people. Now, before we, we move on into this next part, I want us to pause here for a moment and just to consider the value of mourning. I think, I think we've lost a little bit of the art of mourning in our society. The value of lament, the value of prayerfully wrestling with God over what we see going on in our world. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you spent intentional time prayerfully lamenting over the conflict you see and experience? We see conflict out there, don't we? We, we experience, we know conflict in here in our hearts and with relationships we have. And when's the last time we spent, in, it spent time in lament over these things? You see, friends, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and yet here's the world we're in. We're in a world that's filled with conflict. See, there are times when it's fitting, it's appropriate to mourn. It was Jesus, after all, who said, blessed are those who mourn. Maybe we have something to learn from the likes of King David, who is an expert at this, by the way. We read in Psalm 42, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? 
Someone you could like you almost can see his fists up. Like, why have you forgotten me, God? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wound, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Friends, there is a place for prayerful lament. Daniel spent three weeks, 21 days doing this. Have we even spent 21 seconds? After several weeks of prayerful turmoil, Daniel's question was kind of like what David's taunters were saying. Where's your God? I wonder if Daniel was going, where is my God right now? Well, he's about to find out. See, at the end of the three full weeks of mourning, we see that Daniel tells us a, a word was revealed to him in verse 1. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict Verse 1, in, in essence, serves as the preface to all three chapters, okay? He goes, verse 1 is, he's saying, here's what happened. I saw a vision. I had a word. I understood it. It was true. Now let me tell you the story. And then verse 2 through the end of chapter 12 is him telling the story. So then Daniel begins to describe it. We find that he's, he's with some companions. He's strolling on the banks of the Tigris. So this is the river that's north of the Euphrates, just probably north of, of modern day uh, Baghdad. Tigris flows into Baghdad. So that's where he is. And he's standing on the banks with his friends. And it says uh, in verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, so Passover season, the Feast of Unleavened Bread had just finished, day 21. And I'm standing here on the bank of the great river and I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a man. Now before we talk about the man and describe the man, let's think about this and consider this from the perspective of Daniel's buddies who are with him, okay? We, we hear a little bit about them in verse 7. And what verse 7 tells us is it says that I, Daniel alone saw the man, saw the vision and the men who were with me did not see the vision. So think you're, you're, you're these men for a minute. You're walking or along with Daniel along the river. All of a sudden you sense a presence. You can't see it. And yet the presence is there. It's so powerful and fierce. It says that they had great trembling. The literal word is terror. They were overwhelmed with great terror. Imagine they're shaking. And they start running. Because they say, we've got to get away from this. We have to hide from this presence. It's terrifying us. They didn't see a thing. And yet, this man that Daniel saw is so powerful that his unseen Presence sends men running to hide. Who could do this? Daniel says he lifted up his eyes, verse 5, and looked and behold a man. Trying to get the picture now in your mind. He's clothed in linen. Probably something like we see that the priests were told to wear fine linen. Not cotton, but, but linen made out of flax. It's a little more durable. He has a belt of, of fine gold from the Euphaz region. So this is a famous gold-bearing region in the Middle East. So this is really nice gold he has on it. Gleams, it shines, it's, it's pure. 
He's got this around his waist. His body is like the, 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 the rock barrel. So we have gems like aquamarine and emerald. These come from the barrel rock. So somehow his body is glistening rock gem-like. His face is like lightning. His eyes are like flaming torches, fiery eyes. His arms and legs gleamed like burnished bronze. And his voice sounds like a multitude. I don't know if that's like reverberation or, or if it's just a voice that when it, when it speaks, you feel it. And maybe you hear it in your head before you hear it come out of his mouth kind of thing. Like, whoa, this is a really, this is a multitude voice. Psalm 29 talks about the voice of the Lord and gives this great, great description. If you want to make a note there, Psalm 29, read that and think about the voice of the Lord. Seven times the voice of the Lord is mentioned in Psalm 29, which represents this completeness, that the voice of God is complete, it's full, it's perfect. One description says, his voice causes deer to give birth. I think that's kind of funny. That's the voice we're talking about. It sends people into labor and animals too. Daniel alone sees the vision. His friends run away. And it says in verse 8, he's left alone. You know, I mean, think he's, okay, what's going, all my buddies just left. Here I am. We see that his knees buckle. He loses strength. The color leaves his face. He's paralyzed. And then Daniel heard the sound of his words, verse 9. And what does he do? He passes out and falls face flat on his, right down on the ground. In deep sleep, it says in verse 9. What is going on? What, what sort of man is so gloriously terrifying that he paralyzes those who see him and those who sense his presence can't even see him run away and hide? Well, in the words of one Old Testament scholar, he points out that many commentators point out that the language here describes a heavenly being that bears many similarities with the descriptions of heavenly realities we find in Ezekiel. We don't have time today to read all of Ezekiel, but let me just give you a highlight. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel has a similar type of vision experience. And in chapter 1, he's giving this account where there's actually some verbatim language used, like the gleam of burnished bronze is used verbatim. And Ezekiel summarizes the vision and he says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, Ezekiel now speaking, I fell on my face. You see, what we're seeing here, what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 1, what Daniel is seeing here is the paralyzing glory of God. And it's on display in this man, this heavenly glory man, is what I'm going to call him from here, hereafter, the glory man, standing before Daniel. I want to pause, pause for a moment. When's the last time you remember being paralyzed by God's glory? I mean, can you even think of a time that you were paralyzed by God's glory? Maybe, maybe you've had glimpses of his glory in creation. You know, maybe the first time you, do you remember the first time you went to the ocean? You saw its vastness. 
You heard the waves crashing and, and you're standing there going, man, I'm, I'm pretty small. Or maybe it's the first time you, you or maybe the last time you, you drove west and you saw the Rocky Mountains in the horizon and you thought, wow, that's pretty awesome. Maybe it's the first time you looked on the face of a newborn child, maybe your child or a friend's child or your nephew or niece or your grandchild. Or maybe for three minutes this morning as I drove in it and I noticed in the horizon, anyone see the sunrise this morning? For three minutes, the sky was the most beautiful shade of pink and red that I've ever seen. I'm not kidding you. And I was driving and it was in my, my rearview mirror and I actually kept going like this to look at it. These are reflections, of course, of God's glory. I believe they are. Maybe you've been confronted with the glory of God in his word. You were reading and, and you read something and it caused you to just step back for a minute. And you put it down and you looked up and you thought, whoa. When's the last time you took time to be left alone to consider the glory of God? In creation, in his word. That's where we find Daniel right now. He's left alone with this glory man. And he has nothing but to consider the glory of God that paralyzes. So what happens? What happens when we're left alone in the presence of God's glory? Well, in Daniel's case, we find that this glory man reaches out to Daniel. Behold, it says in verse 10, a, a hand touched me. Right away, right away, we got to pause and just say, okay, this paralyzing, terrifying glory man, there's a measure of kindness in him. He's just reached out to Daniel and set a hand on him. And it says, it set me trembling on my hands. And he's trying to help him get back up on his feet. Hey, hey come on, buddy. And then the lightning-faced, fiery-eyed, barrel-bodied, burnished, bronzed, armed leg glory man says to Daniel, Daniel, man greatly loved. Literally, you could translate this to say, Daniel, you are coveted. You are desired by God. Remember, Daniel's name means God is my judge. If you take it all together... Your judge desires you. Kind of powerful. Now notice what the man, this glory man does, does, from God does not say or do. He does not tell Daniel, stop crying. Stop your weeping. He doesn't tell him to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Get back to work, Daniel. There's more important things to do than spend three weeks crying. There's, we've, we've got people to talk to right? He doesn't punish Daniel. We have to stop for a minute and realize that when the glory of God is on display here, paralyzing Daniel and terrifying others, there's a reality that Daniel deserves to be killed. If you go back a little bit in your Bible to Exodus, there's a scene where Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. And God says, I can't because if I show you my glory, it'll kill you. But I'll show you the backside of my glory, a reflection of my glory. 
And here Daniel is in the midst of this glory man who is displaying, uh, at least in part, the glory of God. And the man reaches out and puts a hand on him and says, Daniel, greatly loved man, I have been sent to you. And we see in verse 11, at the sound of his word, Daniel regains a bit of strength. I read one, one commentator, he pointed out right here, he said, you know, it, it is the glory of God that, that, that can take away our strength and it's only the hand of God that can restore that strength. Truly restored, I mean. The man continues his message in verse 12. He says, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, you have been heard. And I have, be I have come because of your words. So now Daniel is learning, not only is this, this glory man, he's not here to kill me. That's good. He's, he's not here to, to chide me and punish me. That's good. In fact, Daniel's learning, he's actually come because I've spent three weeks praying. God heard my prayers and sent, a, sent this glory man to me. And then, and then the man goes on to explain something that's been going on in verses 13 and 14. He says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Well, now you're going, what is happening now? It's getting a little strange. So apparently what's going on is this glory man has been in a, a battle for the past 21 days, three weeks. Just put a pin there for a second. With a being he calls the prince of the kingdom of Persia, which is probably a reference to this evil spiritual being that was assigned to the kingdom of Persia. He was this evil demon assigned to Cyrus and the kingdom of Persia to, to kind of influence them in their evil work that they're doing. Now right away, the, us in, in this world today, we're going, wait a second. The humanist in us is going, this just can't be. I mean, I can't see this. I can't touch this. You can't prove this. I mean, this, how can this be? And we're right away having to exercise a measure of faith. You mean to tell me that this is talking about a world that I can't see where there's battles going on right now? Yep. That's what the Bible's saying. You can choose to believe it or not. And that's okay. We see that he's in this battle. The, the, the prince, the, the language says, withstood me. That's how it's in the ESV, withstood me. I, I imagine it kind of like if you think of Jacob and God that wrestled all night long. Yeah, we're wrestling. I got this, you know. Just letting Jacob think they're wrestling. This is kind of how I see this. And the, the prince, or the, the, the glory man Calls in, sort of sounds like for backup, but I think what's going on is that, all right, Michael, take over here. I got other more important things to do. I got to go tell a man that I love him. So Michael comes, we're told, that's, this is the powerful spiritual archangel who plays an important role in God's heavenly army. We see him about four other times in all of scripture. He takes over in this battle with this demon. And we're told that 
The glory man says, I got to go so I can make Daniel understand what's going to happen in the latter days. Meaning, I need to tell Daniel what's going to happen in the following years. And really what we see in chapter 11 and 12 is the next four centuries are about to be explained to Daniel. About 400 years. Now, I imagine we would do the same thing. When Daniel hears what all this, what does he do? It says he's mute. He can't even talk. He's just... I mean, think, you just, I mean, pick, what? Now, I want you to, to, to think, I put, remember, we put a pin in the 21 days. Remember we did that? This guy says he's been battling this prince for 21 days. What was Daniel doing for the last 21 days? Don't, don't you see what's going on here? While Daniel has been in prayerful turmoil, seeking the Lord, crying out and lament to him, saying, God, where are you? What's going on? He's depriving himself. He's fasting. He's doing all this stuff. For the same period of time, for 21 days, the full three weeks, while Daniel's praying about all the conflict he sees with his eyes, at the same exact time, this glory man has been in a cosmic, unseen, spiritual realm battling against the wicked spiritual forces behind the earthly conflict that Daniel sees. Apparently, Daniel's prayerful turmoil was not just an exercise in spiritual discipline valuable for his own soul. There is a reality here, friends, that Daniel's prayerful turmoil was an instrument of spiritual warfare. He was calling upon God to hear and to act. This is not uncommon. We see this in other places in the Bible. And, and you can maybe write down Ephesians 6 as one place. Where we're actually told to put on the armor of God. And part of that is praying. And what do we see in response to Daniel's prayerful turmoil? In response to Daniel's lonely helplessness and his crying out to God. God sent a lightning-faced, fiery-eyed, linen-clad glory man to comfort him to strengthen him, and to say, we got this. We see in verse 16 then, it, we're told that Daniel's mute, and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Now, it's unclear. Is this another heavenly being? Is this the linen-clad glory man? It's unclear. So we're just going to say it's someone from God. I think it's the linen-clad glory man, but that's just me. Commentators are literally split across the board on this. Regardless of who it is, someone from God is ministering now to Daniel. In addition, or maybe it is, the glory man. And we see that twice more Daniel is touched. So there's been three touches, which I think is kind of interesting. Make of it what you want. Three touches Daniel's given. One guy called it celestial first aid. You know, Daniel paralyzed, Daniel's fallen down, he's mute, and three times he's touched and said, hey, it's okay, buddy. And what is this man, this, whether it's the glory man or another angelic being, what does he say in verse 19? He says, oh man, greatly loved, same message, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. You see, friends, 
You who are here today in a state of utter weakness, utter helplessness, utter loneliness. You who are anxious, worried, and tired. You who are looking at the conflict that you see in the world. The conflict that we experience in our own hearts and lives. The conflict that we we see in our country. I mean, any of you had enough of school shootings? And we look at all this, and can you hear these words from the divine warrior who battles against this conflict and says, fear not, peace be with you. We got this. You see, then he goes on, and really, in verses 20 and 21, he begins setting up the preface for chapter 11, which is basically to say, we're going out to fight this battle. Don't worry, we're going to take care of it. We're going to be right behind the scenes, battling on your behalf, fighting against these evil forces that are causing the kings of Persia and the kings of the Medes and then the the kingdom of Greece and then the kingdom of Rome, that they're going to come against the people of God. And we're going to be right there the entire time battling on your behalf. You see, friends, when you turn to God, when you seek him, when you look to him in prayerful turmoil, acknowledging your own need for him and looking to him alone to meet that need, you can hear him say today, you are greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. When you look around at the conflict in our world, in our country, in our schools, in our homes, in our hearts, you can hear him say, I've still got this. Trust me. You see, dear friends, to those who are in a state of weakness and helplessness and loneliness, God has sent the glory man, Jesus Christ. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is actually made perfect in weakness. And it's this same glory man who fought the greatest battle ever known in the history of the world. But all these things in chapter 11 and 12 are leading up to a moment in time in the first century AD when a man would be born, not of man, but of God and he would take on flesh and he would live a perfect life and he would resist all temptation by the evil one. He would cast out the demons. Remember those stories? And then he would fight this battle against wickedness, evil, and death by laying down his own life at the cross. And although our great Enemy, the devil himself, bruised his heel. The glory man crushed the serpent's head when he rose from the dead on the third day. And as we read this morning in Colossians 2, in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. There's no place for them. They can no longer accuse. They can no longer deceive the nations. He rose from the dead. 
He ascended to heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And then he appeared to another in a vision. We see it in Revelation 1. John, the apostle, the beloved. Remember, he calls himself the beloved one. He tells of the risen and reigning glory man, Jesus Christ. Notice the description in Revelation 1. It's a man who wore a linen robe with a golden belt. He had fiery eyes, arms and legs like burnished bronze, and his voice was like a multitude. Sounds familiar. And when John saw him, what happened? He fell down as though dead. What does the glory man do? What did he do with Daniel? What did he do with John? And what does he do for us? He lays his hand down on him by his presence and he says, fear not. You see, friends, how do we face the conflict in this world and in our lives? Especially when we feel all alone. We remember that in Christ, we're never alone. There is sufficient grace for those who seek God in their weakness. And we can face the conflict in this world and in our lives when we remember that we are not in the conflict alone. Dear friends, would you hear the words of Jesus who says to you in the midst of whatever conflict you're facing, you are not alone when you come to me. And for those who come to him, you can hear him say you are greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we pray that these words would be true for us, that as we hear them, and we may even believe them in our heads, that the truth of these words would settle into our hearts that we might experience and know them. And by hearing them, be encouraged and raised up, Lord, we ask for the glory of the glory man, Jesus Christ. Amen. We come now to the table, the time when we remember the time when we celebrate what Christ has done. You see, the Jews looked forward to Passover every year and we look forward to the Lord's Supper every week because this is when we remember that God, by his own son, laid down his life for us, sacrificing himself so that we could have our sins atoned for, forgiven. And so we come to the table and we welcome those who profess this same belief. And for those who do not profess this same belief, it's for your good to not partake of these elements. But please come talk to myself, talk to one of the elders, talk to Pastor Dan. Where is your hope if it's not in Christ? The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, this is the cup, uh, in the new, it's the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it and be thankful. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And he is coming again. 
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this meal. Lord, we mourn that there is great conflict. And although we are tempted to say, where is our God? Help us as we receive these ordinary elements, Lord, to be reminded that our God is the God who sacrificed himself for us, for his people, to show us that we are loved and cared for and secure, who gave himself to us. So, Lord, we dedicate and, and commit this time to you and your glory and pray that by faith we would be fed and encouraged and reminded of your grace. For it's by the grace of Jesus and for his glory that we are here and in whose name we pray. Amen.